The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind Body Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable and let's dig in. Today, I am joined by Susan Diane Liverpool, and we're mostly going to talk about our relationship to our grandparents. The jumping off point for this conversation is a book that she has written called The Little Liverpool Diaries, and it's basically a series of memoirs based on actual events in her life. Um, She was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, Illinois, and this is just this series of short little memoirs and vignettes about what it was like for her growing up and trying to make sense of the adult world and her family in the 1950s. It is really sweet. It's really funny and also um, really special for folks, I think, to get a glimpse into what it's like to grow up in a multi-generational household. Many of us haven't had that opportunity so um, let's just go ahead and start the conversation. All right. So here we are, Susan. I'm so excited to talk to you about um, your book and about um, your your view on relationships with grandparents and whatever, wherever we happen to stray, wherever our conversation happens to stray today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here with me today. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So I just recently finished your book, The Little Liverpool Diaries. And mm-hmm. um, I really love the glimpse into what it was like for you to live in on the south side of Chicago in this sort of multi-generational household and mm-hmm. the humor. It like I just loved the the humor. And so I think my first question for you is um, pertaining to that. Like, was that was there a lot of humor in your family? Was that part of sort of the cultural fabric of your family, or is that something? Yeah, like where did that come from? Well, I think I added the humor to the stories. I don't remember my life being particularly funny. When I was growing up, it was uh, actually there was some there was sadness, there was fear, like running from dogs in the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. but when I would tell these stories to my friends, they would laugh because I just I think I just have a funny sense of humor. I think I'm. You know, people can if they people describe me, they would say I'm funny. Yeah. And so I added the humor to the telling of the stories, kind of like looking back. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sometimes when you look back, 
things seem funny, but in the moment, you know, like the Pickens Floral Club going to my grandmother's club meetings, it was kind of boring until it was time to eat because I'm little and I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what they're arguing about. All I know is there's a lot of food in the dining room and I can't wait to get back there and eat it. But when you're adult, you have some distance from that time. And I don't know, there's, I was just able to tell it in a way that made people laugh when they would hear about it. And then they would say, oh, I remember my grandmother belonged to a social club and blah, blah, blah. People would tell me. Yeah. Things. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's so great about this book is it, it is so relatable. I mean, I did not grow up in Chicago. I didn't grow up in a, you know, multi-generational household. And mm-hmm. still there were things like that sort of kid point of view, you know, the way that you see things or the, um, w- like where things just seem sort of normal. And then you grow up and you look back and you think that was absurd. That was absolutely <laughs> absurd. <laughs> yeah i mean when my grandmother would take me places in the car she drove very slow at least it seemed to me she drove very slowly very deliberately and i would be embarrassed that she was because other cars would zoom past and i would kind of hover you know slink down into my seat because i was ashamed to be seen with this slow driving woman and when I tell people that story, it seems ridiculous that I was embarrassed. But I remember being embarrassed. Yeah. And wish, you know, I remember saying, can't you drive faster? Yeah. And I remember her saying, I'm not going to kill myself trying to keep up with people. Blah, 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 blah. And I would be like, oh, my God, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The stories of her, it, it seems like she was a, a woman who was pretty comfortable in her own skin. Like she knew who she was. She was not going to compromise for anybody else. Like my, you know, I'm not apologizing for who I am. And this is who I am. This is how I show up in the world. <laughs> That's really a great way to describe her, actually. Yeah. yeah. So you. I wonder, is that something that you feel like you got from her? Is that like a a lesson or something that was sort of passed down? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like. I guess just an observation of her. She was feisty, mm-hmm. what she would call feisty. She didn't hold her tongue. She was kind of argumentative. Yeah. And um, sometimes she embarrassed me because she, I remember gas was 10 cents and she would get to the gas station and she would say, this is ridiculous. It was eight cents the other day, and now it's 10 cents, if you can imagine. And I just felt like, he doesn't have anything to do with the price. Why are you arguing? So, and my mother was the same kind of person, but in a different way. She was more calm, even toned, but you knew not to mess with her either. So I'm sure I picked up that way of being, yeah. you know, no comp, you know, uncompromising in her character or integrity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 I think it's, um, 
I, one of the things that I was really struck by is, um, like I said, I did not grow up in a multi-generational household. In fact, my grandparents didn't live really anywhere near me mm-hmm. as a kid. And, and so I, you know, I would see my dad's parents once a year and my mom's parents once a year and we didn't have extended family around. And so mm-hmm. my, my context, my worldview was was basically my mom. I mean, my folks got divorced when I was eight years old and we just lived with my mom. And so there was that sense of like, she was the seminal adult in my life. And the thing that I was really struck by when I was reading your book is that you got the benefit of sort of watching these three really very different adults. Like they each moved through the world in completely different ways. Right. And they all cared for you deeply in their own way again, right? And and so it, it seemed to me that from a really young age, you got this sort of understanding of the complexity of different human beings and, and what it's like to navigate different relationships with different adults. Does that seem accurate? Wow. I never thought about it that way. I guess you could say... That when you grow up around adults, um, wow! I never—I mean, that—that's really fascinating what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking, and I think I had an easier time relating to adults than I did to kids my own age. Yeah, actually. Yeah, and. I did have a different relationship with my grandmother than I did with my mother. Mm-hmm. I found my grandmother easier to be around. Yeah. Easier to, you know, to be with. Yeah. Um, my mother was the disciplinarian, you know, so yeah. my granddaddy, no, no disciplinarian, whatever I wanted, you know, Yeah. <laughs> man, a few words wrapped around my finger yeah so yeah i get that yeah yeah i just thought you know it it was really interesting to because like you and your grandmother even if you butted heads sometimes you seem to have an awful lot of fun together yeah doing things we shouldn't be doing she (laughs) would we would go into the polish community to get polish sausage Polish sausages are a big deal in Chicago. They used to be mm-hmm. delicious. Oh my God. And she had high blood pressure and she was, of course, was obese and she wasn't supposed to eat Polish sausages. Yeah. So that was our secret. I would get half, you know, yeah. and yeah. So we had fun, fun together. I was her little compadre. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded like it. It sounded like there. And I wonder, I'm not a grandparent and I'm mm-hmm. not ready to be a grandparent. My oldest <laughs> child is only 23. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I can see how that relationship would feel very different, right? Like I'm not the primary disciplinarian for this person or it's me, you know, like I can teach mm-hmm. them things, but, but it's more of a like mentor relationship than it is this like parent kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. But there must Mm -hmm. be sort of an ease and a joy in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I can imagine it's like that for a lot of grandparents. Yeah. You know, to not have to have the responsibility maybe of the primary, like you're saying. But they were right there, you know, just right upstairs. Yeah. And so I can imagine that that, that was the difference for my mother in terms of her being able to work and obtain a master's degree mm. over time. That, you know, she had her her mother, my babysitter. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's really cool. I it's there were parts of it where I was like, I'm a little jealous. I didn't have that sort of <laughs> close relationship with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and it feels like they're one of the things that um I will often as I'm working with people, I do parent coaching um, and memoir coaching. And then I also work, do grief and rage work with people. And one mm -hmm. of the questions that I ask folks is to inquire about for themselves is to look at their sort of struggles or beliefs or behavior patterns and to be able to ask, where is this older than me? Like, where did I, where did I learn these things? Either by watching my mom or my dad, or aunties and uncles, or grandparents, like, where did I sort of absorb lessons about what it means to be a woman or a man, what it means to be a parent, what it means to grieve, what it means to, you know, what sorts of things are acceptable, or how do I do these things? Like, where, where's this older than me? Right? And, mm -hmm. um, and so I was thinking that about that a lot as I was reading your book and thinking you had kind of a front row seat to this sort of like, because I'm sure you saw dynamics between your mom and her parents as well, that you were like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And um, I have a, you know what, as you were talking, you really ask great questions. I mean, I don't think I've ever delved into this at this level. I'm really I'm always fascinated to hear what people have to say about the book, but um, I really appreciate the depth of your questions because um, being uh, being authentic is a real big deal for me, mm -hmm. and um, just really noticing what people don't say out loud. Yes. Because there was a lot of that growing up. I could feel tension, right. especially my grandfather was my step-grandfather. He wasn't my mother's biological father. Mm -hmm. But I never knew my biological grandfather. He died before my mother was even born. Mm. Um, well, wait a minute. Well, he's, okay. Yeah, I think she was born, but he died soon after mm -hmm my mother was born mm -hmm. and she married my grandfather when my mother was a little bit, little girl. So she grew up with him. Yeah. yeah. She grew up with him and he's the only grandfather I've ever known, but there was some tension that, and I heard, I haven't written about this, but I heard about, that my grand my grandmother had a she had a pretty she could have a pretty volatile temper. And she and my mother would get into arguments. And we almost didn't live with them, move into that building because of the friction in their relationship. Wow. 
Um, and my grandmother, my understanding is my grandmother begged her to take, when they bought that building, when my grandparents bought the building, the brownstone, mm-hmm. she begged my mother to move in with me. She said, let me help you, you know, let me, yeah. um, I, we won't charge you normal rent, you know, because yeah. we were living, I think we were living in like, almost like a tenement, what they call a tenement back then. It wasn't really a safe neighborhood. It was because she was struggling. She was a single parent. Right. I was like two years old or something. So she finally talked her into moving in to that apartment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I would not have been able to raise my children in the same household as my mother. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, mm-hmm. no way. We would not have been able to, we would not have been able to manage that. Um, and yeah, so I, I can imagine that there, well, and even just reading the book, like you can, you know, kids, kids learn to read between the lines, right? They like, I'm paying attention to what I'm hearing, but I'm paying way more attention to what I'm seeing. Exactly. Exactly. It it felt like I was the center, like the world revolved around me so that they could avoid dealing, you know, sometimes with each other. I don't know. Sometimes you feel like the attention is coming towards me as opposed to each other. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I couldn't probably put it into words, but I could feel that there was some kind of long some kind of past between my mother and my grandmother. Yeah. Because my my great-grandmother raised my mother for a long time. So, and my my grandmother was a teenager when she had my mother. I think she was like 17 Mm. when she had my mother. So I just can imagine there was some resentment there. My grandmother was a teenager herself. Right. Um, she, you know, so I, I never knew the full story, but you could, fe- I could tell that there was some kind of family dynamic dysfunction there. Yeah. But the focus was making sure I was loved and taken care of. And I know my grandma. It almost seems like my grandmother wanted to make it up to my mother by having, you know, we're in a position to give you an apartment. I mean, we played, we didn't, we played probably a fraction yeah. of what she could have, what the, what do you call them? Value, yeah. market rate for that apartment would have been. And I lived there from the time I was two till I finished college. So. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's wild to think yeah. that, you know, um, yeah, till you finished college. That's a that's a long time. So then, when you had your child, did does your son have a, a lot of contact with your mom? Like, what is that relationship like? Yeah, in fact, my I was a single mother. My son is autistic, mm-hmm. and um, by the time he was eight maybe nine or it might have been 11 between eight and 11 he um um my mother found um a easter seals program in chicago mm-hmm. that's 
just was designed for uh, children, aut autistic children. He was on a waiting list and he finally got in. So he moved to Chicago so that he could go to this school for kids who were autistic. I had a really difficult time because back then it took me a while to accept it, to figure out what autism was. Sure. And, uh, you know, he was having a real hard time in school because the, the public schools here in, in Atlanta at that time, you know, special needs classrooms. He, he was, he, he's high functioning. So he was either too, um, developed for the special needs, but not enough to be in the regular classroom. The kids would pick on him. Yeah. Um, it was really difficult for him. And I was, it was a blessing when she was able to get him enrolled in the school. And he was in that school from about 12 to 21. I think they cap out at 21. Yeah. So. Wow. It was, it was a, a huge blessing that she was able to, to do that. Yeah. For me. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So yeah, it's there. You didn't, you don't write a lot about your mom in the book, but it's, no. you know, it's pretty clear that um, that she was a very strong-willed person and that, you know, she had a definite um, influence in your life, right? But um, it is that, yeah, that, that relationship between you and your grandparents just seemed like it was so special and so sweet and you just knew that you were cared for and you knew you were going to be taken care of. Yeah. My mother and I, when I became a teenager, I think when I turned 12, that's when we started butting heads. Mm -hmm. And um, as a lot of, as it happens with a lot of daughters and mothers, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I agree. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well aware. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it took me writing this to have enough distance to see what she provided because my, my artistic talent comes from her. Mm. Um, she gave me the opportunity to do all kinds of things, dancing, ballet, music lessons, singing lessons, piano lessons. She took me to all, she wanted me to be very culturally diverse and she took me to museums. We'd go to museums all the time, go to theater. So all my nurturing and immersion in the arts comes from her. Mm. And so the book does focus on my grandparents because I think that's where I felt a little more loved, like, and not disciplined. You know, I don't know. I just had... I guess resentment from the, she's very, I felt like she was so strict. Right. And, um, but she was an artist. She, she made all our clothes, made beautiful clothes. Wow. And uh, she had all kinds of music in the house, but she wouldn't let me listen to James Brown though. She really? Oh, I couldn't listen to the black radio station. I couldn't listen to, 
uh, kind of white, white music, but she didn't like James Brown. She didn't like it. He was vulgar. That was the word. She liked that word, vulgar. <laughs> so I would listen, turn to the black radio station. But when she came home, I had to turn it back to yeah. the Crocker station. <laughs> but she had all kinds of music. I mean, we had records, uh, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong. Yeah. That's, you know, she had just a wide range of music. We went to the movies all the time. She had soundtracks from Sound of Music. You know, so I used to love to dance around the living room and sing to all these soundtracks and stuff. Wow. I love yeah. that. I love that. Yeah, my parents definitely had sort of eclectic musical tastes. And we, you know, and there was never a time where we would like, you know, you would go on a road trip and it was the the eight track would get stuck in there and we, you know, listening yeah. to music all the time. But I but I do think there's this um sense of, you know, for me, um, so I was not like a traditional kind of single mom for most of my parenting, but I was a single mom because my husband, now ex-husband, traveled and he was gone 60 or 70% of the time. So it was me um, that was doing all the things with the kids. And it is that would, so one of the scenes that I was struck by in your book was when you had gone to your grandfather's work with him during the day and you'd eaten all the, the wild cherry cockroaches. Oh my God. I was so addicted to those things. I love those. Where things. are you? Where are you? Oh, me too. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> They were delicious. You're right. They were candy. They weren't cough drops. There's no medicine in them. They were, they, it was like wild cherry lifesavers is what they were. Just like in no. a shape. But yes, we totally, I used to totally eat those. But yeah, so you had like, you know, eaten your weight in those. And then you're spending the night with your grandmother and you throw up all over the bed. Not once, but twice. And that... Like the patience that she had, the tenderness that she had with you, right? I mean, she might have rolled her eyes. She might have thought, oh, good Lord, are we, you know, it's the middle of the night. But there was this tenderness, right? And I can remember wishing that I had the bandwidth to have that kind of a response to my own children. But we yeah, me too. a parent. And you're yeah. completely exhausted and you like, you don't have the resources to like, I just want to sleep. Like, mm -hmm. Oh my God. And you know, <laughs> cognitively, like it's not my kid's fault. Like you can't, you know, if I got to throw up, I have to throw up, but there's this like, yeah, there were times where I reacted in certain ways because I just had no resources left. I had no bandwidth left. And later I would apologize and be like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I wish that I had done this differently. But you can see how, you know, just being that one step removed as a grandparent, especially because she's married, you know, to someone who has a job, she's got a roof over her head. Like there was a stability and a security there for her that she probably was much more able to access that compassion and tenderness. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm just, I'm sorry. I was just listening to you and forgot. I wasn't even, when you said, right, like, oh, she's asking me a question. <laughs> yeah, I still remember, because I remember feeling anxious when it happened. Like, 
is she gonna be mad at me yeah. for for doing this? Because I shouldn't have ate all those side cough drops anyway. But I just remember her being calm and patient, and like you said, just loving. I remember getting in the bathtub and having a bath, and then all that talcum powder and. Yeah. You know, another nightgown. I don't even know where that nightgown came from. Um, so, yeah, I can still have, I still have, a, I don't know what you call that, but a, the experience of that, of the emotions surrounding that evening, that night in the bathroom and getting back into bed. I remember sprinkling talcum powder before she put the sheets on the bed, you know, and getting in the bed and Oh, turn out the light. <laughs> and yeah, then just, <laughs> that feeling of like that's what it should be like, right? Like, isn't that what we want all of the kids in the on the planet to feel? Is that like tenderness and care? It like, yeah. Wow, this was really, you know, that was really awful. And I'm sorry this happened, and we're gonna clean you up and tuck you back into a nice warm, dry bed. Like oh, Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and I love, too, that she just seemed to have this, you know, sense of humor. But the other thing, too, the, the other story that struck me was um, with the your first fist fight. Because, you know, as strong-willed as she was and as strong-willed as your mom was, you, at least in the stories up to that point, seem to have a little bit of trepidation about like, where, where, where do I stand up for myself and where do I not stand up for myself? Right. Like you're trying to, as any kid does, right. You're trying to sort of figure out. And, and I love how she was like, Oh no, sweetheart, you're going to go advocate for yourself. You're going to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. You're, you're going to let people know this is the line you don't get to cross. Right. Mm -hmm. And that I feel like is such a huge gift. Like when we can teach young people how, what it looks like to advocate for themselves. And I'm not saying you should just like, you know, go and punch out whoever you feel like (laughs) punching out. Although if someone uses the N word, maybe, you know, maybe Mm. so. Mm. But that, um, yeah, just that gift of, of being taught how to stand up for yourself, I think is a big deal. Yeah, I was more afraid to come home and get, be, you know, having been beaten up. Yeah. Than to just go ahead. And, it was scary to punch her. I didn't think I was going to punch her. I just thought I was going to spin around and tell her, now you leave me alone or just, you know, something like that. But the, I didn't know how close she was to behind me. So my fist caught her in the stomach and that was like whoa a wake-up call for her was like oh she really hit me yeah 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 and i um and you did allude to you know that wasn't your only fist fight in (laughs) in your life (laughs) so clearly that that lesson kind of stuck for you but um yeah i think my you know again if i'm looking at this from like a multi-generational thing my mom never taught me to stand up for myself or advocate for myself. She was so much more concerned with 
me following the rules and being a polite, good little girl, right? And so um, to have somebody in your life who could, you know, say, "Uh uh-uh, you don't let people treat you this way. This is not going to happen. It's kind of a gift. I love that she did that for you. Yeah, my mother was a demonstration of that too. She made, she did who she was, was she didn't cowtail. Well, she was a Chicago public school teacher. So she saw herself as kind of a advocate for young people. Mm-hmm. And kids were afraid of her. Yeah. They might act out in other kids' teachers' rooms, but she was like, we won't have that in here. But that was at a time when kids were more, I think, willing to be obedient Mm. than they are now. I can't. She quit. She actually took early retirement because she said the kids are getting way more violent and angry and confrontational. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't imagine. I've been a public school teacher. especially and not in Chicago, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, it, I think you would, you have to have a certain um, willingness to put up with a lot, I would imagine. Um, so, so how, what was it like for you to leave Chicago, having sort of grown up in this like safe cocoon of this household, right? And then when you went off on your own, what was that like for you? Well, I spent, um, three of my four college years living on the campus of the University of Illinois. So I might come home on the weekends, but I lived away from home. So it wasn't like home, you know, I was home seven days a week and then went. Um, I was happy to leave. I did feel, I guess I must have felt, I want, I was ready to like be independent. Yeah. And I had met the guy that I was going to marry in Atlanta. Mm. So I decided I'm moving to Atlanta (laughs) and it was very difficult for my mother. I found out later. I don't remember her being unglued or anything, but I found out from my grandma. Mm. Interesting story. I was lit. My, my boyfriend was mostly living with me in my apartment. Mm We were living, mostly living together. And my grandmother calls me one Saturday morning. She said, your mother is on her way to Atlanta to pay a surprise visit to you. Oh, no. That's exactly what What? <laughs> Thanks, Grandma. Gotta go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the thing that I remember is, wow, my grandmother was pretty savvy. Because she, she figured out the blessing with this guy. I didn't think grandma was cool like that. I didn't think she, but she, she gave me the heads up. And um, so we spent like the next couple hours cleaning up and him moving his stuff into his car, driving his stuff back to his house. Uh, so I look like I'm a little single. I'm a little single girl. <laughs> And sure enough, um, here comes a taxi. I see. So I'm like, oh, hi. You know, hi. <laughs> I'm like, thank God. 
Yay, Grandma. <laughs> well, I know Grandma's got it going on. I didn't think she... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, I... I mean, I think I wonder if that's a, yet another testament, though, to the way that you were raised and the way that you, that sort of solid foundation that, that they gave you, right? Was that when, like, you were ready to go, right? Because mm-hmm. you probably felt like, I'm capable, I can be out in the world, this is fine, right? Because you learned that from them sort of bringing you up in a certain way. and That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I had other challenges, you know, getting a, you know, working, buying a car, figuring out Atlanta traffic. Uh, but they, you know, my, I remember my grandfather, I think he gave me money for the down payment on, on my car. Mm-hmm. Um, I was spoiled. I, I just be honest. But I, but I did have a feeling of I could do it. You know, I could um, yeah. move down there and take care of myself. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, that's one thing that I talk, again, when I'm doing parenting coaching, it's one of the things that I talk with parents a lot about is this, like, if we can give kids a really solid foundation that they feel like they can handle pretty much anything, and also the knowledge that if there's something they can't handle, it's okay to come back to us and ask for help. Mm-hmm. then, I mean, that's how we give them wings, I think, is, you know, by saying to them, you can handle a lot more than you think you can. And there's absolutely nothing that you have to handle 100% on your own. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a thing. <laughs> so just, you know, if you start to feel like you get in over your head, there's no shame in crying wolf, like, I need help. Sorry. <laughs> You know, I guess crying wolf is the wrong thing, but just, you know, saying, saying I need help. I'm, I used to say to my kids, well, I still say to my kids that help is a complete sentence. Like you can be just in over your head and not really even know how you got there or what the solution is. All you have to do is say help Mm -hmm. and, and we'll figure it out together. Well, that's fine. I think it was hard for me to say help sometimes. Uh, I think I was trying to prove that I could be independent. Mm. I think um, as I listened to you, I think at first it was okay to say help, but there seemed to be this notion that you should be able to stand on your own two feet. Mm. So I think, yeah. I wonder if a lot of that is generational. I mean, I certainly got that. You know, my my parents were, uh, you know, suck it up, figure it out. <laughs> you know, no blood, no foul. You're fine. Keep moving yeah. forward, right? And so I never felt safe, like, calling my parents and saying, I yeah. screwed up. I totally screwed up, right? Yeah. But that informed my parenting because I didn't want my kids to feel that way. I, you know, I would say to my kids all the time, like, I'm not raising you to be independent. I'm raising you to be interdependent because oh, we all rely on each other all the time. Like if my hot water heater exploded right now today, I'm not fixing that myself. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, I, I could probably look something up on YouTube and figure it out, but 
Why? Somebody had to make the water heater too. And somebody's going to have to deliver it to me because I don't have a pickup truck. And it, like, there's this whole, like, we, independence is a myth. That's, yes. that's not something that's actually even real. I mean, even if I'm like sitting in a cave somewhere completely by myself and I cut myself open, that cut is going to heal thanks to the good bacteria that are on my skin and the, you know, if I have to give myself water, I have to eat enough healthy food. I have like, even like, there's no such thing as independent. And so, um, and so I wonder, um, how the way that you were raised informed your parenting Did it? I mean, were there things that you feel like, again, that's that, where's this older than me question? Well, Honestly, I was, when I found out Jason was autistic, that I was ashamed. Mm. Um, and I was scared. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I had to learn about autism. I said that I must have done something that caused this to happen. Mm. Um, And um, my mother, she eventually was helpful, but at first it was like, she felt like the divorce caused some emotional trauma um, for Jason, that it was, he wasn't autistic. He was just having, you know, he was damaged emotionally from the divorce. So I felt very guilty. Yeah, that's a lot to carry. About that. But eventually, I think she moved away from that position mm. because she did find the Easter Seal School for Autism. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it was difficult to get along. You know, the, it was hard to get along with her at first. And Jason started out normal. You know, in terms of meeting the, what do you call it? The, the heart, the milestones. Yeah. Milestones. Yeah. Milestones. Yeah. Um, but then he stopped talking <clears throat> around four or five or something. Mm. His language didn't continue to develop, is what I'm trying to say, because he was talking. So I don't know what I would have done if she hadn't been willing to take him on because I had to have jobs where I could pick him up right after school. Right. It was, you know, I was having trouble finding childcare. Yeah. Uh, so it was difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think um... there's much more support for autists, you know, in terms of autism, everybody, there's so much more information support than there was at least I wasn't aware you know I yeah I think I spent a lot of my time in denial and um I was fortunate to have some good friends around me to help and uh some good child care you know yeah child care people to help me 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I do think that there are, you know, there's definitely more awareness and there's more sort of um, understanding of the kinds of challenges. But one thing that I think that we haven't figured out in this country is sort of caregiving as a whole, you know, that um, like, you know, if you're a single parent and you have to work but also you have kids that are school age and it's like, how do you navigate that? Right. The daycare is so expensive. After school care is so expensive. Summertime, you know, all the summer camps are crazy expensive. It's, you know, so we haven't, we kind of just expect people to sort of figure that stuff out on their own. Right. And I had, um, I helped take care of both of my parents when they were dying and I had young kids at home. And so I was mostly single parenting and I'm taking care of my dad had lung cancer and my mom had early onset Alzheimer's. And, you know, my, I mean, the care is so expensive and it's like, we, we just haven't really figured out how to prioritize that. And so that's the other thing is like, I know a lot of people, I, um, they're, I'm the co-administrator of a Facebook group called the sandwich generation, which is specifically for people who have kids at home and who are caring for elders simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And like for so many of those families, like the thing that you would look to if you don't have the money or the resources to get your kids childcare is your parents. But now Mm -hmm. you're caring for your parents too. And there's this, so it's like, like you just, we don't have the resources. (laughs) We kind of haven't figured out how to do that. And that's one of the things that I think is so beautiful about your story is that that was it, you know, there may have been, it sounds like there were some tensions and there were some struggles around it, but also Mm -hmm. it was this multi-generational household where the child was the focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really get how blessed I was to, to have that experience. Yeah. of having my grandparents nearby. Um, yeah, looking back, it's like, wow, I was very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine that it was, you know, probably somewhat challenging for your mom, but also there probably were times where she thought, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness mm-hmm. for this. I'm sure she did. Can you imagine having a two-bedroom apartment and I remember seeing one of the canceled rent checks. I think it was $150. Wow. I mean, now we're talking about, you know, 60 years ago, but yeah, I don't think that's a lot of money. I don't know. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was below market, market rate for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful. I, I am going to, well, put the link to purchase the book, um, all of your books, but you know, this one, especially in the show notes, because I really think, um, it just, it's such a fun read. It's such a great glimpse into, um, that really special relationship that you can have, you know, mm-hmm. in this multi-generational household. And I'm super grateful that you took the time to talk to me about it today. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for your questions. They were way more profound than I expected. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I I always say go deep or go home. 
That's kind of my motto. Oh, well, you did. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Susan. This was really great. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, You'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical things seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.